I want to draw your attention this morning to the Word of God as it comes to us from Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to be looking at the course of several teachings in Matthew chapter 5 and then a little later in Matthew 6. You'll find the citations in your bulletin today and I will be unpacking them in detail so I won't read them to you at this particular moment. Let me just say that we have begun a series during this Lenten period of reflections on what it means to give up. Uh, during Lent, uh, it's traditional for followers of Jesus to think about giving something up. It might be TV or chocolate or something uh, else that's precious to us as an act of sacrifice to God. But in the deepest sense, the sacrifice that God most longs to have us um, undergo is the one that opens our hearts to him, that changes our very nature, that allows him the opportunity to move through us towards others. And so we've been thinking about some of the deeper conditions of our lives that we feel God is longing to change in us. Uh, we've talked about what it means to give up control. Uh, we've talked about what it might look like for us to give up the treadmill hurry of our lives. And today I want to think about a, a particularly heavy subject, a difficult subject for many of us, and think with you about what it might look like and why we might even go about the process of trying to give up our need to be right. Our need to be right. How many of you like to be right? Yeah, it feels wonderful to be right. It is something that we are never tired of in our journey through life. In fact, if I were to ask uh, the couples or the family members that may have come along together to this gathering today, which of you is usually right? I'd probably need some counselors on hand to help you work through that issue. Uh, so much of our life, if we think about it, is, this, is the passion to get things right, to do things right, to say things right, and to exert our sense of the right uh, often over those who are so obviously wrong. Uh, when we look in the Bible for the poster children for this particular passion or way of being uh, in life, we, we find them in the uh, group of individuals that the scriptures simply call uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, sometimes the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law. Uh, the PTLs, as I'm going to call them for short in our conversation today. The Pharisees are, are often given a bad name, as you know, through the course of tradition. They're the ones that are painted as evil people. They're uh, traditionally looked at as people who wear the Darth Vader masks because of their opposition to Jesus. And yet, the truth is that the Pharisees were not all bad. Uh, the Pharisees and teachers were individuals who wanted to do things right. They wanted to be right with God. They took very seriously the... Uh, the biblical law that had been handed down through the prophet Moses to the people of God to uh, picture for them what it meant to please God and to maintain their purity as the people of God. And, and so zealous was the commitment of the Pharisees and teachers to the, to the rightness of God's law that they had taken the time to actually break down the great Ten Commandments into all kinds of sub-rules and regulations all kinds of other practical ways of living into the implications of the Mosaic uh, Code. 
And the result of this was a now a very long to-do list, literally hundreds and hundreds of ways of speaking and acting and moving through the world uh, whose conformity to uh, marked you as a righteous person. If you, if you did all of these things, you were a righteous person in their uh, eyes. And if you failed to do these things, then you belonged into the other category. You were what's called a sinner, a hamartolos in the Greek, which literally means someone who had missed the right target, who, who had shot in life and come wide of the target. And the Pharisees divided the world up into those who were righteous and those who were sinners. Now, one of the great mysteries, I think, of the Bible and indeed of all of human history is how a group of individuals as comparatively bright, well-educated, affluent, thoughtful as the Pharisees and the teachers of law could actually have missed Jesus. These folks were arguably, arguably the most religious and devoted people of their time. Uh, they had spent their lives trying to align themselves with the way, the truth, and the life of God. And yet when God himself comes to meet them in the flesh, is standing right there in front of them, is inviting them into the kind of conversations that could enlarge their understanding of the way of the kingdom of God, the Pharisees and the teachers reject it and condemn the message bringer. Uh, it would be a little bit like the the local Blackhawks Booster Club holding their meeting, and all of a sudden the door opens up and in walks this uh, mid-heighted uh, blonde fellow with a red jersey, and his name is Patrick Kane. And they take one look at him in outrage, and they, um, they listen to him share a few thoughts, and then they grab him and they begin to berate him and to beat on him because his approach to hockey is so unconventional compared to their understanding of it. Or it would be like the local community theater in a neighborhood where you live uh, has decided to put on their own version of the voice, the voice competition. And, and, and in strides a woman named Beyonce and comes out onto the stage and she sings and she dances as only Beyonce can. And, and the judges uniformly disqualify her, reject her, and, and in fact insists that she be taken out to the parking lot and bludgeoned to death because she did not meet their standard of music. It would be like that. It would be a, a, a bit like that, the treatment of the Pharisees to Jesus. Only bigger. Even bigger. How does this sort of thing happen? How does this sort of travesty, this sort of uh, clouded perception happen in our world today? How do people get so stuck in their particular personal sense of, of rightness that they can't see a better way, a, a, a larger truth, a, a greater kind of life, even when that possibility is right there in front of them, beckoning to them, inviting them in? How is it that people in our families and our workplaces and our politics these days get so very rigid in their orientation towards one another that they cannot admit anything that could possibly be right in what the other is saying? 
brand them as wrong? How is it that we miss the opportunity to discover more together, to build relationship with one another? How is it that so often it ends in divorce, in deadlock, in demonizing, in disaster? Just think of all of the ways and the places where that's going on today. How are we so perseveringly blind? Well, the case of the Pharisees and teachers and their relationship with Jesus, I think, has something to teach all of us, to provoke us to deeper thinking about the way we are seeing the world and ourselves and other people in our time. And psychologists offer one answer to the reason for why people sometimes get stuck in this sense of rightness that will admit no other claims. Uh, they, they chalk it up to something that's called confirmation bias or, or motivated reasoning it's sometimes described as perhaps you learned about this in some college psychology course. The way this confirmation bias works uh, as documented now by massive reams of research is that when forming their convictions most people rarely pour over a list of arguments and reasons for a particular point of view about a subject and then choose to believe after they've made their list of pros and cons, uh, choose what they're going to believe based on a careful reasoning process. On the contrary, most people uh, choose what to believe fairly quickly and viscerally, a gut sense and then go looking for reasons to explain why we believe this. And as a result of that process of decision-making, we will tend to push disconfirming information away. Information that threatens what we've already confirmed in our hearts gets pushed out, and, and friendly information is brought close, that which confirms our previous point of view. In other words, the amazing brain power that God has given to human beings, the capacity to reason as God reasons, uh, to, to see the intricacy, the complexity, the creative tensions in things, the multiplicity, the many-colored nature of reality, that amazing ability that human beings have like no other creature on earth gets deployed to defend what we've settled upon instead of to discover an even larger picture of this glorious life. As Pulitzer Prize-winning author Elizabeth Colbert explains, what's even more interesting is that humans use this capacity randomly. We are randomly credulous people. In other words, when we get presented with somebody else's argument on a specific subject, our incredible reasoning powers are fully active. And we can quickly spot the logical flaws in the other person's argument. It's not hard at all to tear them apart and see where they're actually uh, acting very inconsistently or thinking very inconsistently. But we are almost invariably blind. We're our reasoning powers are, are sort of put on the back burner or turned off momentarily when considering our own point of view. It's as if we don't really want to know if our answers or our perspectives are incomplete we just want to feel right. We just love feeling right. 
And we come by that honestly. Neuroscientists will tell us that when advancing the rightness of our point of view, our brain produces a little spurt of dopamine. The neurotransmitter associated with pleasure gets kicked up when we're asserting our rightness. Doesn't it feel wonderful to be right? You're in a good argument, you're advancing your opinion, you're feeling with such certainty the rectitude of your point of view. Uh, it's a pleasurable experience to be right. Another reason why we can become a bit like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is because of a phenomenon known as the illusion of deep understanding or expertise. How many times have you been in, in uh, situations socially with others and somebody has advanced a very strong opinion? Uh, they will simply say something like, well, that's just how she is. <laughs> you know how she is. I can't believe those callous idiots could, only callous idiots could ever believe in that particular policy or want that sort of legislation to go through. A man in my small group uh, wondered this past week, uh, why if we are truly interested in the truth, do we let the conversation stop at that particular moment? We hear somebody say something so definitive, so passionate, and if we don't just outright agree with them, we do let the conversation trail off there. What might happen, my friend wondered, if we didn't? Suppose you're you're in a social circle of some kind, you're at a cocktail party, you're in a work discussion, you're uh, at the coffee hour at church and somebody makes one of these passionate statements of judgment and you decide to do what few people do in these circumstances normally, you ask a follow-up question. You say, wow, you feel strongly about that. Tell me more about how you came to that opinion. Um, what, what's the backstory there? What are you basing that conviction on? And in the rare circumstances where somebody doesn't switch the conversation now to how the bulls are doing or the bears are doing or, or to passing the guacamole, um, and suppose they actually offer an answer of sorts, they describe an experience they had or a, a person they heard talking on TV or a, an article or book that they read someplace, suppose you then take the discovery process even further. You say, thanks for sharing that. Tell me what seemed especially helpful to you about that resource. Uh, um, and, and do you know where did that resource get their facts and, and, and their information? And did you, did you have a chance, I mean, did you, as you were forming your convictions about this, tell me about some of the other alternate points of view that you really looked at closely, weighed carefully, and discarded, and tell me what that was about, why you made those decisions. How many conversations do we have like that? Very few. Very, very few. And I think the reason for that is, is a simple one. We don't want to embarrass people. Because we know deep down inside that a lot of the opinions that people hold, including our own, are not exhaustively researched ones. 
and have really pressed hard to explain ourselves and our point of view on a lot of things, you know, we might fold. It, it could get really uncomfortable for us to explain ourselves. And in a study done at, at Yale University a few years ago, this, this, this illusion of deep understanding really got uh, revealed in a very graphic way. Graduate students at the university were, were asked to rate their understanding of, of how everyday devices like toilets and zippers and uh, cylinder locks worked. They were, were to rate their understanding of how these devices work. And most of the students rated themselves as having very high understanding of these things, these things we use all the time. And then the, the researchers said, great, we, we thought you did. You're graduate students at Yale. Of course, you would know this. And then they slid a piece of paper and uh, gave them a pen and said, just, just write it down how they work, would you? Just sort of break it down for, you know, common people, how these things work. And there was this terrible awkwardness because these really intelligent people could not even explain in a reliable way how a toilet works. Imagine how they fared when asked to explain how the healthcare system works. <laughs> or all of the, the tensions and the difficult economic and cultural issues around immigration. Uh, or so many of the other important times. Think of, of just all that goes into understanding what our spouse or coworker with whom we just had this raging fight was actually feeling, what their whole backstory was, and our backstory was in leading to that conflict. We have this illusion that we understand, that we've got expertise in so many different areas. Now, given that issue of confirmation bias or that uh, illusion of deep understanding, you can understand why the Pharisees, um, as they encountered Jesus, might easily have felt that they, that they were clearly right and he was clearly wrong. But I think there's a third reason that, that people like the, the PTLs and others of us get stuck on our version of what's right. And it has to do with the power of what I'd call peer reinforcement. Uh, peer reinforcement. Life today is hard for most of us. It moves fast, as we talked about last week. It, it, the treadmill just keeps racing. We struggle to keep up. We're come at from so many sides, pressures to decide to do in so many spheres of life. And most of us have discovered along the way that, that one of the things that enables us to just get through is having partners for the journey. We talk a lot about the value of that here at Christ Church. We need partners for the journey. We need a, a tribe of people who companion us along the journey of life. The challenge, however, is that the great goodness and value of that, of that peer group we have can also become a liability if within the peer group there exists this illusion of deep understanding or this kind of confirmation bias. And, and, and if we hear one of our close peers vouching for the truth in a certain way or declaring their vision of the right in a certain way, there are very, very few of us that, that, that are inclined to risk distancing ourselves from the other person by not um, 
at least tacitly agreeing with them. And, and, and we just don't want to challenge or offend them, and they don't want to challenge or offend us, and so a lot of time we remain silent at the very moment we ought to be pushing each other, challenging each other towards a deeper understanding of the lives that we're living, of the issues around us. Now, you get this illustrated in, in the stories that we read in the gospel. One of the, the preeminent Pharisees was a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus had this nagging sense that actually this Jesus of Nazareth that all of his peers were condemning and plotting now to actually destroy really offered the light to Israel. So much so that Nicodemus snuck under cover of night just to go and visit and talk with Jesus and ask questions and inquire further of whether Jesus might know something he needed to know. And yet there's very little evidence that Nicodemus had the guts to stand up to his peer group. And he certainly was unsuccessful in turning the point of view of his peer group. And they ultimately went on with their own plans. The question I would ask you and ask myself is, are, are we stuck in groupthink anywhere in our lives? Are we just going along with the peers? Uh, do we need actually to be the kind of companions that questions the version of right that is being espoused? Do they need to do that with us? As we wrap up today, I, I want to touch on one more factor that I think plays a role in our needing to hold on to our particular version of right, even when what is truly right might require our getting an expanded frame for it. I wonder if a major part of our problem simply has to do with that age-old issue, the fundamental human condition, the most deadly of all sins that the Bible calls pride pride. A few years ago, a, a massive study was conducted in which participants were presented with a, a set of issues, problems, kind of policy questions in a sense, and were asked to reason their way to a proposed solution uh, to come up with their own answers. That was part one of the, pro of the process, and they would pass their answers in to the examiners, and then the examiners sent the answers back to them immediately and said, take some more time. These are such important questions. Take even more time. Think this through again. Consider the sources or the points of view you might have missed the last time and, and come up with an even better answer if you possibly can. And so the people worked away and the second time in round two, only 15% of the people, one-five percent of the people, actually changed anything either because they didn't do the work or they, they couldn't come up with an alternate way and they sent the papers back towards the examiners. Well, the examiners held on to the papers for a short period of time and then in part three, the examiners passed papers back out again. And they explained that they were giving everybody somebody else's answer, somebody else's response, their vision of what's right in response to this particular issue. And, and the job now of the students was to uh, critique the response. And, and, and they did. 60% um, of, of the people came out with very hard critiques of that answer. What the examiners had not told them, however, 
was that the paper they were being given this time was their own original answer to the problem, with the answer just changed up a little bit in verbiage, but the same basic point of view. 60% of the people now rejected their own answer. The, the answer they'd been given all this extra time to perfect. What does that tell you about the human condition? What does that say to us about our need as people to, 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 to know more than someone else, to have the, the smarter, more wise point of view uh, on one subject uh, or another. If the Pharisees and, and the teachers of the law could be standing in the presence of God, God in the flesh, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life himself, and reject him bitterly, how easy is it going to be for you and me to be standing in the presence of mortals, mere mortals, who are flawed in all kinds of ways, and yet who bear something of the truth, some light for us, and, and yet be inclined to utterly reject that which is standing there. Jesus said, your eye is a lamp. Your point of view is a, is a lamp that provides light for your body. Your point of view actually turns back in on yourself and provides light for your soul, for your life. And when your eye is good, when your point of view is clear and good, your whole body is filled with light. Your whole life will be filled with light. But when your eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have, if the point of view that you, that you have is one you're, you're absolutely certain is light, but is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is says Jesus, because you've stopped even admitting the possibility of further light. Pride wrecks our eyes. I can see it in myself. I get in the fights with my wife or with a co-worker and the, the pride surges and the dopamine flashes and whew, I'm so intensely sure of their wrongness and my rectitude, but it keeps us from admitting, admitting the greater light. It, it makes us walk in darkness too much of the time. Our need to be right is the challenge. It's okay to pursue the right, but our need to be right uh, that limits us from admitting greater versions of the right can make us people like the Pharisees, very religious, very zealous and determined, yet we miss out on the potential that's right there in front of us. In fact, Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your, your version of righteousness is greater than the Pharisees and teachers of the law's understanding of it, you will not be able to enter into this way of life that I am describing as the kingdom of heaven of heaven. Now a lot of people I think struggle with this particular teaching of Jesus and in fact misunderstand it. 
Because it sounds kind of like Jesus is saying here that we need to be following an even stricter form of religiosity than the Pharisees were following. That we need to be even more, more morally righteous in a sense or determined to be right than the Pharisees were. But the major intention of Jesus in the teaching he gives us in the Sermon on the Mount is actually to take us in a different direction. He's not trying to drive us towards greater and greater uh, rigid perfectionism. He is actually trying to shatter the notion that the PTLs had and that many of us do have. That if we just try hard enough, we can be perfect we can be absolutely right where others are wrong. They're sinners and wrong. And so Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, basically is unpacking the Mosaic Law in the teaching. And so he's basically saying, so, okay, I get it. You aren't literally murdering anyone. Check. You aren't literally sleeping with somebody who's not your spouse. Great. Check. You think of yourself as a pretty loving person. I, I see that. So, so I have to ask, says Jesus in the sermon, how are you doing with anger? The stuff that leads all the way up to murder. And, and, and how are you doing with, with lustful thoughts? The stuff that goes all the way up to adultery. And, and how are you doing with forgiving your enemies? and withdrawing attention to your own religiosity and goodness? How are you doing with judging other people? How's that going? And, and, and what Jesus is trying to help us see is that none of us are even close by divine standards to being completely right. And it's not wrong to keep pursuing that kind of moral rightness but to settle on where we are and claim that as far enough and therefore something we hold over other people is something that that is just devastating to the spiritual progress god wants us to have the good news is you and i do not have to be right in the absolute sense all the time we actually simply need to be redeemed. Although the process of redemption, of surrendering ourselves to the reality that it's the righteousness of Christ alone poured out upon the cross that, that is our hope and our salvation, the very process of admitting that reality can often spur us on now to pursue the right from a different point of view, not a prideful point of view any longer. But, but, but the desperate concern of God is to help us get to that place of reality. Uh, what's the difference between righteousness and rightness? Between the righteousness that is being commended by Jesus and the rightness that the Pharisees were holding on to? It's simply this. Rightness, in the Pharisaical sense, is mainly aimed at securing and justifying and advancing myself over other people. When, I, when I'm feeling right in an argument, it's a superior rightness. Um, righteousness, on the other hand, is all about lining up with the heart of God. 
It's about seeking the common good, even if that means surrendering. And, And Jesus, of course, is the exemplar here. He is the one who is right, absolutely. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And yet he does not hold on to his position. He does not cling, as we talked a couple of weeks ago, he does not grasp onto his prerogatives as one who is absolutely right. And yet is, comes to people, meets them on their terms, asks questions of them, builds relationships with them, tries to expand their vision and, and, and draw them into the, to the common good that is the kingdom of God. So, My closing question for you today is, what would it look like for you and me to give up our need to be so right? How how could we do this a little bit more in the days to come? And I want to emphasize, this doesn't mean giving up seeking to be obedient to God. I think the call of God to the fullness of the way of his kingdom is beautifully laid out in Scripture, and we're called to follow that. But what's the heart we need to bring to the process of pursuing that kind of righteousness? Well, I want to suggest to you that one of the first things that we can do is to think about the fact that you and I really take in afresh the fact that we are not even close to being personally right in the divine sense and just be grateful. Gratitude's the first movement. That God has not rejected us because of that. And when that really sets in, that kind of gratitude sets in, how is that going to impact the way we approach the other people in our life who are not right, who are wrong? Secondly, let's be humble. Let's be humble enough to confess that we may have logs in our eyes, that there may be confirmation biases, that we may have this illusion of deep understanding, that we may be clouded because of our particular peer group, that pride may be keeping us from discovering more than we now know. Let's truly be humble. And finally, the next time we find ourselves on the verge of mortal combat with somebody else, and it'll probably happen before we leave the parking lot, or at least (laughs) by the end of this coming week, mortal combat with somebody who is so obviously wrong. Let's be more curious. Let's resolve to be more curious about how they came to that particular point of view. Let's try and understand the backstory, the life experiences, uh, the various um, things that have factored in and fed into making them, taking them to this place. Let's try and understand those feelings and convictions rather than just clenching harder and pounding our convictions and our feelings uh, all the harder towards them. Why should we do this? Why should we even bother with these things? Well. One, because in listening and learning, we might actually grow. We might actually connect with people from whom we're now separate. And I would argue in America today, we need to make some connections here so we can work together for the common good. But even more importantly, wouldn't it be a terrible shame if we were so clouded in our rightness that we missed the very person God sent, almost as if from heaven, to help us find a larger truth, 
a a more life-enhancing way and a more abundant life. Would you please pray with me? Great God of truth and of grace, as we move into these days to come, we have but one prayer. Help us to seek to be more righteous than right, more aligned with who you are and how you move through the world than aligned with what we've always been. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.